Heavenly Father, there are so many things that we need help with today in understanding your word, and we pray that you would help us to behold marvelous things and that we would be led to worship you, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have ever ridden on a roller coaster, then you can probably remember that almost every roller coaster does this, that there's an ascent, a long, slow ascent before a drastic change in direction and speed, and you suddenly drop into the abyss. Well, Daniel chapter 7 is kind of like that. There is a dramatic and drastic change that takes place here. The most obvious and striking change is that the genre of the book itself changes. The kind of literature that we read is very different from chapter 7 onwards than chapters 1 through 6. You probably felt that even as Katrina read it aloud for us, or if you read it this week ahead of time. You just realize that the text gets kind of weird. Daniel has these disturbing dreams. In them there are monstrous beasts. These beasts have body parts from different animals. Some of them, it's like a genetic modification gone wrong or something. Some have multiple heads. These heads have multiple horns. And then horns start growing out from underneath other horns and displacing them. And then even some of these horns, they have eyes on them and mouths on them. And they start boasting and speaking. It's very, very odd. It's disturbing. It's strange. It's otherworldly. It's like the book of Daniel. You can imagine it as if it was a WhatsApp group where the conversation starts turning from just text messaging back and forth to suddenly a series of GIFs, these vivid pictures that are moving and colorful and they are intended to communicate something, but it's so strange. And they try to communicate something that words alone, or prose alone, I should say, because there's words here, but they can't communicate on their own. It's like something out of a comic book or a fantasy novel, Lord of the Rings or Narnia or something. And I believe that that's entirely the point. These portions of Scripture are intended to shock us. We are seeing something that is out of this world, at least from our own perspective. Now, the technical terms for these two genres, if you're interested in that, are the, the first six chapters are kind of heroic court scene narratives, which then give way to apocalyptic visions. And if, if you've ever heard that word, apocalyptic, before, you probably are thinking of the end of the world. But apocalypse or apocalyptic, it simply means revelation, just like the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. What these otherworldly visions are intended to do is to pull back the curtain and to reveal the world from God's vantage point, 
from his perspective. It's heaven's perspective on our earthly situation. Now, when most people get to these portions of Scripture, there are two very common reactions. The first is obsessive fascination. You've probably met some people like that. Their favorite book in the Bible is Revelation. They're trying to figure out which animal or which monster is Putin, which one's Trump, which one's the Russian army or the Nazi Germany. They're obsessively fascinated with these portions of the Bible. And that's one reaction that I want to kind of discourage. Obsessive focus on these portions of Scripture is not what is best for us as Christians. But the second common reaction, which maybe is maybe more common, is fearful avoidance. So even over the last week or two, I was talking with a member in the church, and he told me, oh, oh, no, no, I don't go there. I don't read that bit of the Bible. It's just, I don't know what to do with it. It's so hard. It's complex. It's confusing. And hey, trust me, I get it. A lot of pastors stop preaching Daniel at Daniel chapter 6 and move on to another book of the Bible. And I'm kind of wondering why I haven't done that. (laughs) I'm just joking. This is God's word and it is good for us. But I hope that you will avoid both of those two reactions. And I hope that we'll see together that while there are aspects of these chapters that are confusing or disturbing, that the ultimate purpose... The ultimate purpose of portions of Scripture like this are to encourage the saints by showing us God's eye view. Now, let me just be clear about that. I'm going to use the word saints throughout the sermon. And to be clear, when I say saints, I'm not talking about saints in the way that the Catholic Church would talk about saints. Uh, A superset of really spiritual believers, uh, parts of God's people, but... No, when the Bible talks about saints, it means all of God's people. Everyone who is a part of God's kingdom is a saint or a holy one. And so when I use saint, that's what I mean. I mean all believers, every Christians. And the purpose of books like Daniel and Revelation are to encourage us. To encourage us. And so I pray that as you, the saints, leave here today, you're not going to be disturbed And hopefully you won't be completely confused, but rather I pray that you'll be encouraged. I pray that you'll be encouraged knowing that our God reigns over the evil empires of this world, but he will give an eternal kingdom to his saints. Our God reigns over the evil empires of this world, but he will give an eternal kingdom to his saints. That is the main point of Daniel chapter 7. Our God reigns, even over evil empires of this world, but he's going to give an eternal kingdom to his saints. Chapters 1 through 6 had proved to us already that Daniel has a gift of interpreting other people's dreams and visions. He's done it multiple times. In chapter 2, he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon's dream about the statue. It was made up of different parts. And then in chapter 4, he interpreted uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a tree 
a tree that was chopped down and bound with iron. That was in chapter 4. And then he interpreted Belshazzar's vision at the banquet, the evil banquet, where there was a hand that wrote on the wall, and Daniel was the only one who could interpret it. That was in Daniel chapter 5. But now, one of the other changes is that rather than someone else having a dream, Daniel has a dream of his own. And as we see in chapter 7, he's unable to understand this dream. He needs a heavenly interpreter. He needs God's help. And so there's another shift in the roller coaster that is the book of Daniel. There's another turn. There's a change in the intended audience of these messages in Daniel's chapter 7 through 12. Instead of being public for all the world to see before these uh, boastful kings, now Daniel is the one that God speaks to directly. And through Daniel, God speaks to his people, Israel. The vision of chapter 7, though, it echoes Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Both these chapters sketch out four future human kingdoms until the arrival of of the kingdom of God. So Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue made of different materials, and then a rock that was cut from heaven came down and smashed it to pieces and grew into a mountain that filled the earth. This was the kingdom of God that will endure forever. The vision of Daniel 7, it follows a similar pattern with different images, more vivid, greater detail, extended scenes. It's like watching the same movie, but in the extended cut, ultra high definition version versus on a small screen in black and white. The chapter describes the vision that Daniel had in verses 1 through 14, followed by an explanation of the dream that's given by, we assume, an angel in verses 15 through 28. And the rest of the book Daniel chapter 8 through 12 is actually just zooming in and focusing on different aspects of this vision with different images, different symbols, but it's all the same part of history. Four kingdoms and then a heavenly eternal kingdom. And so as we get through to the end of Daniel, we'll see even more detail about these things. But Daniel's dream here in chapter 7 unfolds in three scenes. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. And scene number one is going to be the point number one. So scene one, the raging beasts. Scene two, the ancient of days. And finally, scene three, the coming son of man. So point one, the raging beasts. Apocalyptic visions and apocalyptic literature are filled with intense images and symbolism. And we see, that, we see that strikingly here in these first eight verses, which describe the four ferocious beasts. These beasts are churned up out of the sea by the four winds of heaven. The sea in the Bible is a, is a symbol of chaos. It's a symbol of disorder. And that's the first clue that these four beasts are evil. Now, each of the beasts is compared to an animal. We're told that it was like 
and then it tells us the animal, except for the very last one, which we're simply just told was, it was terrifying and exceedingly dreadful. One of the challenges of reading books like Daniel and Revelation is that this vivid imagery is used, and oftentimes it's hard for us to know exactly what it means. But even before we jump to trying to understand what do these different symbols and pictures mean, it's important to just feel the effects of them. Just let it wash over you. Look at verses 4 through 8. This is where it describes the four beasts. The first one is like a lion, but with wings. And then these wings are plucked off of it. And then it's forced to stand up. I mean, even trying to visualize it in your head, it feels strange. Just wait. The second is some sort of disfigured bear. We're told it's raised up on one side and that it has three ribs that it's eating hanging out of its mouth. The third beast is like a, a leopard, another predatory animal, and it has four wings of a bird on its back. Not only does it have four wings, it has four heads. Just picture that. The fourth beast was different from the others, we're told. It's even more dreadful. It's even more powerful. It's devouring. And this beast just stomps and destroys everything that comes in its way. It has ten horns. And then even later, it's, we're told that it has this little horn that pushes some out the way. And then it has eyes and a mouth. This is not a pleasant dream to experience. This is a terrifying dream. It's meant to be. These are not bunny rabbits or kittens. These are ferocious animals that kill and are scary. If you walked into a room and you saw any of these, you'd probably faint. Daniel acknowledges that this dream made him feel anxious, it says. He was alarmed. But what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to take away from this crazy vision that Daniel has? And how do we even understand it? Well, I'm going to give you some tips for how to do this. So tip number one for how to read strange and symbolic parts of the Bible. Tip number one, just keep reading. Sometimes the Bible tells us how to understand these things. So look down at verses 15 through 18. After seeing all the three scenes of the vision, Daniel asks one of the heavenly host, what it all means? What is Daniel supposed to take away from this vision? And the angel's answer is almost laughably short. It's so simple. It's so basic. Listen, look there. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's the main point of the vision. The angels told Daniel, the four great beasts are four kings, but God's saints will receive a kingdom and they will possess this kingdom forever, forever, and ever into eternity. And look further, if you want to know some more about the details, look further down in verse 24. It tells us a little more. 
As for the ten horns, that was on the fourth beast, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. So now we see that beasts represent kings and kingdoms, but also horns can too. Scripture helps us to interpret itself. Sometimes it's as immediately as we see here in Daniel chapter 7. So keep reading, brothers and sisters. If you want to understand Daniel 7 better, read Daniel 8 and read Daniel 9 and then read all the way till the end of Daniel and read everything that came before Daniel and read everything that comes after Daniel. That's why I encourage you each week when I get to preach, read ahead, guys. Read the passage that's coming up the next week. Prepare yourself. Which leads me to my second tip for reading apocalyptic literature. When attempting to understand the symbols, for the most part, we don't need to look outside of our Bibles. We just need to know our Bibles better. We need to look back into the scriptures themselves. Because God has designed the Bible with repeating ideas, repeating patterns and pictures and events, symbols and ideas that keep recurring, keep repeating. Sometimes we see them very obviously. Sometimes they're more subtle. So tip number two, look for biblical patterns. Look for biblical patterns. The vision here in Daniel 7 is filled with them. I'm not going to be able to take you to all of the different ways that this connects with other portions of Scripture. But you want to know something really interesting? In fact, this whole scene is actually like a grim retelling or a grim parody of the creation in Genesis 1. This is sort of like an anti-creation story. One author who was very helpful as I read this week in preparation describes it this way. As in Genesis, at the beginning, the spirit or winds, those are the same word in Hebrew, the spirit or wind blows over the sea just like in Genesis 1. But instead of the creation of light and land culminating in a divine image, there emerges from the chaotic sea four beasts in succession, each more horrifying than the previous one until the last one emerges, a gruesome spectacle, the embodiment of evil. Daniel is beginning to see the world from the divine perspective, from God's eye view. This world is not the way that God created and made it to be. Rather than man exercising dominion over the beasts, now man is behaving like beasts and devouring and killing and raging. The first beast king is like a lion, we're told but it has eagle's wings. And then someone who is not named plucks off the wings and the beast stands up like a man and receives the mind of a man. It's given the mind of a man. Where have we seen that in the scriptures so far? Well, that sounds a lot like King Nebuchadnezzar who only three chapters ago lost his mind, acted like a beast in the field, and his hair grew like eagle's feathers, and his nails and his claws were like bird's claws. But when God humbled him, when he humbled himself before God, he was restored, 
He was raised back up onto two feet and he was given the mind of a man. His reasoning returned to him. The second beast king that follows is raised up on one side. It has devoured already because we see it's got ribs in its mouth. And an unnamed voice tells it to rise again and to devour. Daniel had this vision during the reign of Belshazzar. I don't know if you picked that up, but in in Daniel 7 verse 1, it says that this was during the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we've actually gone back in time. Daniel chapter 7 doesn't come after Daniel chapter 6. It actually comes before Daniel chapter 5 in terms of chronology. And so we already know that the kingdom of Babylon will fall. We already know who will replace this kingdom. It's Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. And maybe being raised up on one side means that he was ready to pounce or something. Or maybe it's just displaying this unbalanced relationship between these two powers that had fused to form a joint kingdom, the Medo-Persians. History tells us that the Persian Empire was actually far superior to the Medes, but they they combined. All we're told here about the third beast is that it was like a four-headed leopard with four wings. The idea of a leopard and wings tells us it was probably terrifyingly fast as well as deadly. Most people take this to be the Greek Empire which was notoriously fast in conquering all the known world. Alexander the Great had conquered all the lands known to him by the age of 30 years old. And then he wept because there was nowhere left to conquer. Maybe it's Greece. And then we get to the fourth beast, which we're not even described except for it's terrifying and terrible. It's even more destructive than the ones that came before it. And most people have identified this as the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was, of course, world known for its battle and conquering. As we get further into Daniel, we're going to learn more about each of these kingdoms, these four kingdoms. But let me just encourage you that when we approach these more difficult interpretive parts of Scripture, when we get to these parts that are harder to understand... I want to encourage you to have a lot of humility about how you hold your views about it. There are plenty of scholars who continue till today to debate a lot of the details of the symbols and the visions. Book after book has been written about them. And some of these books are just wild and unhelpful and just, you should just avoid them. But there are many even helpful resources that are going to disagree on exactly how to understand passages like this and symbols like those. Even this week, as Dan, uh, Daniel, Brian and I, I didn't study the passage with Daniel, that would have been awesome. But as Brian and I studied the passage this week, we were like going back and forth about, I'm not sure what do you, I'm, well, I'm not sure if I totally agree with you, but I think, and so just let me encourage you, have humility about these passages. They are hard. But that leads me to my third tip for reading apocalyptic literature. Tip number three, don't miss the forest for the trees. 
Don't miss the forest for the trees. If you've never heard that phrase, it simply means don't miss the big picture by getting stuck on all the small little details. If you recall from earlier, remember what the angel said when Daniel asked him to explain this dream. He said a very simple answer. He didn't get lost in all these details and explain them to Daniel. Clearly, they weren't important enough for Daniel to know. He said that there would be four ferocious kingdoms which would be replaced by an eternal kingdom that would be given to the saints of the Most High. That is the main thing for Daniel to take away from this vision that he's seen. That God reigns over the evil empires of this world, but God will give an eternal kingdom to his saints. Don't get lost in the little details and miss the big picture. The main idea. Daniel, though, even with that answer, is still curious. He does wonder about the details. And so he isn't satisfied and he asks, he inquires about the fourth beast. The beast that was different from all the others. The beast that was exceedingly terrifying. And verses 19 through 27 add further detail to what was described in verses 7 through 14. The fourth beast, we're told now, has iron teeth and claws of bronze, and it will devour the whole world, it says in verse 23. It conquers and it destroys all that stand in its way. It stamps them down. Ten horns come up from it. These are ten kings of some kind, and then one little horn arises. A horn that has eyes like a man and a mouth that speaks great things or boasts a lot. Again, we're seeing pictures, we're seeing flashes, we're seeing images of Genesis. This bizarre and powerful creature distinguishes itself from all of the other others with proud speech. What does that bring to mind? A beast that speaks? Oh, the satanic beast, the one that spoke in the garden, the one that led to the fall of man. At the heart of this, at the heart of these kingdoms, behind them is Satan. Satan is pulling the strings. The angel tells Daniel in verse 25 that this horn, this king will speak against the most high. He will blaspheme God and that he will wear out the saints. He'll bring persecution on God's people and he will think to change the times and the law. That means to try and take the place that God alone can have. And the saints will even be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time, but not forever. Why does God reveal this to Daniel? Because God wants Daniel and Israel and us to see the world from his perspective. The kingdoms of this world are beastly. They're satanic. They're not all satanic or beastly in the same way, nor even to the same degree, but they are all evil. They are all greedy. They are all corrupt. They're violent. They're cruel. They devour. They destroy. They dehumanize. Is 
that the way that you view the world and the kingdoms of it? Because I know that there are times when we're tempted to think that kingdoms in this world are not so bad as that. And we're tempted to think that they're not so temporary. They feel like they'll exist forever. Maybe you were tempted to trust in a particular place or a kingdom that you hope to get to. Maybe that was why you came to Dubai in the first place. Maybe you thought that if I can get to Dubai, it will go well. It will sort itself out. Things will go better. That, that may have been the case, but don't put your hopes in Dubai or any other kingdom. Maybe you want to one day emigrate somewhere else. That may even be a good decision because not all kingdoms are equally corrupt or destructive as we see in this vision. And I'm not saying that rulers and governments can't do good, but Daniel's vision helps us see that every single one of them falls short. Every single kingdom of this world is beastly to one degree or another, and it won't last. Don't put your hopes in kingdoms of this world, brothers and sisters. They are at war with the kingdom of God, and they are at war with the saints. And they won't last. For some of you, though, that this is exactly how you see the kingdoms of this world. Maybe you've been mauled. You've been torn apart by those in power over you. You've been treated less than human. You've been chewed up and spat out, just like the exiles of Daniel's day. Take heart, friend. God sees it all. He isn't absent. He hasn't lost control over that square of the world, that country, that place, even here. In fact, astonishingly, we see in Daniel 7 that he sovereignly reigns even over these evil empires. And we've seen that throughout Daniel. We saw it in chapter 1 when we saw that it was Daniel, not Daniel, sorry, it was God who gave Daniel and the people from Jerusalem over into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar to conquer them. And we see it here throughout this passage, even in these early verses. Who was it that plucked the wings off of the first beast? Who was it that lifted it up? Who was it that gave it the mind of a man? Who was it that told the second beast, arise, devour much flesh? Who was it that gave dominion to the third beast? The, Dan, uh, the, the passage in Daniel 7 doesn't give us the answer explicitly, but we have to conclude that it is God. God is the one in control of it all. God isn't mentioned here directly because he doesn't stand behind good and evil in the same way. God can never be charged with tempting or or doing evil, but God somehow sovereignly reigns over all things, even the evil that takes place in the world. That truth, that truth that God is in control, even of sin and even over evil, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But when we rightly understand it, it actually ought to comfort us, not make us uncomfortable. Knowing that God is in control, even when the world feels like it's falling apart, it brings peace to God's people. 
God's not only behind the good things that happen in your life, God is even behind the hardships that happen in your life. And he has designed them and ordained them for your good and for his glory. But how will God respond to the rampant wickedness of evil empires and evil and sin in the world? The vision answers that question as the scene shifts in verse 9 from earth to heaven, from the raging beasts to the ancient of days. That's our second point, the ancient of days. Look there at verses 9 and 10 with me. It's worth reading one more time. Thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. What we'd only seen implied earlier about God's reign now becomes crystal clear. We see God seated on his throne in glory, in majesty. The Ancient of Days arrives. That title, the Ancient of Days, this is the only place in the Bible that we see it. Here, three times in Daniel chapter 7. So it's clearly important to Daniel. It's communicating something. The Ancient of Days or the Ancient One, the Everlasting God. It's telling us that God is eternal. God is eternal and that means far more than having no beginning or no end. It means that God isn't confined by time. He's not limited by time. He exists outside and above time and he acts in time. In fact, time exists in God. Get your head around that. We can't even comprehend it. All that we do and all that we exist in is time. The best way that I've found to to understand it is what St. Augustine said in the year 400 and something. He said, for God in eternity, nothing moves into the past. All of history is present. It's impossible for us to understand that, but it matters. It matters to us because it teaches us that God rules not only over kingdoms and kings, God rules over time. He rules over history. All of time is in his hands. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. God's working it all out according to his purposes, according to his plans. Nothing can stop him. He is all powerful. He reigns over it all. God has plans for your next week, your next month, your next year, your next millennia. And they are good. They are perfect plans that he has decided and determined on. They may not be easy plans. They may be difficult, just like the ones that Daniel and the exiles faced. But that's exactly where God wants us. And they will be used for our good and for his glory. Daniel goes on to describe the ancient of days, what he looks like. 
His clothing is white as snow. His hair is like pure wool. These ideas are are meant to, they're meant to communicate and symbolize purity and holiness. Not only does he reign, but he's pure. He's holy. He's good. And fire too is a symbol of God's holiness that purifies and burns and flames. Our God who reigns, he's all wise. He's all knowing. He's all pure. He's all holy. He's all powerful. He arrives on a fiery throne chariot thing with wheels of burning fire and fire goes out before him. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands attend him. They serve him and no one can stand against him. The beasts are nothing compared to the majesty of the most high God. Oh, what comfort that is for God's people to know that he wields such awesome power, that he reigns over everything in your life, every detail. And what is happening here? What is happening in heaven's throne room? Swift and exact judgment. Daniel watches as the boastful beast was killed immediately. Its body burned and destroyed with fire. He gets a picture of God's coming judgment on the evil of this world. When the books will be opened. And every evil deed, every evil thought, every evil word will be given account. The certainty of God's judgment is reiterated throughout this chapter. It's mentioned in 22 and 26, judgment will be given for the saints of the Most High. But don't miss the point. Don't miss the point, friends. God wanted Daniel to know that his ultimate victory over evil, it was not going to come immediately. It would be a long time coming. God's kingdom rule would not arrive after the Babylonian kingdom or after the Medes and Persians. It would come at the end. Other kingdoms would arise, they would devour, but God would bring it to a final end. This much is certain. No matter how long the persecution lasts, there is a day when God will judge and evil will end forever. The certainty of God's coming judgment is also of great comfort to God's people. And that's why it tells us that judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. They're vindicated. They are avenged. Knowing that our suffering won't last forever, knowing that God rules in favor of his people, and that there's a time coming when he will give them the possession of his eternal kingdom, brings great joy and gladness and comfort, doesn't it? But how? How will God establish his kingdom rule on earth? What will he do? Daniel's vision answers that question with the sudden arrival of a third mysterious figure. We see him in verses 13 and following. The son of man. Behold, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion. To him was given glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
unlike the kings who resembled monstrous beasts, now one comes and he's like a son of man. He's like a human. And again, we see echoes of Genesis where God had promised that an offspring of the woman, a man would come. A man who would defeat the evil one, who would crush Satan underfoot, one who would deliver God's people from his power. And yet this one who's like a man, he arrives, how? With the clouds of heaven. And he stands before the ancient of days and he is given an everlasting dominion and he's given glory. This can't just be a man. This must also mean he's God. God doesn't share his glory with another. Who is this one who is divine and human? Who is this one who would give that God would give his glory to? Who would God give an everlasting kingdom so that all peoples and all nations and languages would serve and obey him? Were it not for the New Testament, we'd be left just as baffled as Daniel was most undoubtedly was. And when the Lord Jesus came, he came and he arrived and he preferred and referred to himself as the son of man. That was his preferred title. 88 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man is used of Jesus. The point is clear. This Son of Man from Daniel 7 is Jesus, Son of God, who took on flesh, who came to establish God's kingdom rule in the world. We see that God sent his Son and that he was fully human as well as fully God. He came to establish God's kingdom rule on earth. He went about proclaiming the kingdom and he, arrived, and he said that it arrived with him and he called people to come. Come and be part of his kingdom. Come and be part of this everlasting kingdom. Turn from their sins to follow him, King Jesus. Unlike the beasts, kings that we saw who devoured, Jesus didn't take a kingdom for himself. He didn't force his authority through violence. He was simply given authority from the ancient of days over the world. And he was known for his compassion. He's the compassionate king, the kind king, the loving king. And he's especially kind and compassionate and loving towards sinners like you and like me. Jesus didn't come to kill and destroy. Jesus came to give his life so that people might live forever. The Son of Man came to serve his people by giving his life as a ransom for sin. Jesus went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God, the judgment, so that when the books are opened, our sins would no longer be there. They were blotted out by his blood, and it's written, forgiven. He was raised from the grave in victory, never to die again to live forever into eternity. And now he has risen and he's exalted at the right hand of God, even now reigning over his kingdom, the church here on earth. Jesus doesn't seek to hoard power for himself. He invites us to inherit the kingdom with him. Did you notice that? Three times in this passage, it tells us that the saints will inherit, they will possess the kingdom of the Son of Man. The final time is there in verse 27. Look there with me. 
the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to who? If I was writing this, it would say the son of man, but it says to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. His kingdom becomes our kingdom and we triumph because he triumphed and his victory is our victory. And so friends, if you're here, we all have a choice. How will we respond to this son of man? Where is your faith? Where's your hope? Where's your trust going to lie? Where will your allegiance be? In the kingdoms of this world that are already perishing? Or in the son of man who gave his life for sinners to become saints of the most high? Oh, I plead with you, if you haven't, trust him. Turn to him. Lean on him. Follow him. He will keep you and hold you into eternity. Daniel concludes here at the end of chapter 7 that after the dream and even after he'd received its interpretation, he was greatly alarmed. Daniel was overwhelmed by what he had seen and he pondered it in his heart. He knew that hard days lay ahead for him and for God's people. And that is still true for us today. Jesus promised us the very same thing, that the kingdoms of this world would rage and that there would be wars until Christ returns and brings his kingdom in full. One thing is absolutely certain. Nations are going to rage against the Lord and against his church. But there's a day coming, brothers and sisters, when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. Hold fast to that hope. And remember the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. You, the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, you reign over all and we worship you. We bow before you. Lord, we give you thanks that in Christ you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and evil and sin and death and you've transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to persevere and to endure evil days until he comes and makes all things new. It's in his matchless name, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.